Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. For those who know this chant, let's do it together. Om Asatoma Satgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya Avir Avir Mayeti Rudrayate Dakshinam Mukam Tainama Pahinityam Om Shanti 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 Om Lead us from the unreal to the real Lead us from darkness to light Lead us from death to immortality Light us through and through ourselves, O Lord, and protect us always with your sweet, compassionate face. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Good morning. Um, our topic today is to labor. To labor is to pray. And it's actually a quote from Sister Nevedita in her absolutely brilliant introduction to the complete works of Swami Vivekananda. She was a very beloved disciple of Vivekananda, knew him better than most. And uh, in that incredible introduction, she said that Vivekananda, like all great spiritual teachers, taught the same truths, the same great truths that have been taught by Buddha and Jesus and Muhammad. And all the great spiritual traditions teach these great, incredible truths. She said, however, this isn't to say that he didn't have something new to offer to the world, because she said he did. Uh, or at least if he had, if it had been said before, it hadn't been well expressed or clearly stated. Uh, for example, the meeting of the East and the West, which he certainly brought to a head when he appeared in this country and sort of brought Hinduism to the West. The second was the meeting of, of the modern world with, uh, with the ancient world, which again he embodied and he brought to the West. And the third, which is what concerns us today, is what she said was um, a meeting of all modes of work. She said all modes of work, all modes of struggle, all modes of realization are paths to realization. All modes of creation are paths to realization. And she said, no distinction henceforth between the secular and the sacred. To labor is to pray. Now that's really quite an amazing thing to say. No distinction henceforth between the secular and the sacred. Labor is to pray. Uh, because all of us, um, and the reason I even thought of this topic, the reason the sentence was kind of re resounding in my mind, was because of Labor Day. And I thought, oh, September, Labor Day. And it wasn't until like a couple of days ago, I thought, oh my God, it's 9-11. And then I thought, it, it's, it's actually quite appropriate because labor is about karma. All actions are karma. So we're dealing with, with the effects of action and their effects, karma. And having just been uh, a couple of weeks ago at the new version of the World, World Trade Center and seeing what a triumph it is, it's sort of a perfect example of karma, how we're not defined by the past, but we move into the future. So on that note, again, I thought of it in context with Labor Day. It's like, okay, September, 
Fun's over. It's all over. It's back to work, back to school. No more fun is allowed. It's back to the daily grind. And it really is a grind. And now there are people who can be very glib and say, you know, I just feel very centered all the time. I bring my spiritual life with me so that no matter where I am, I feel like I'm in a shrine all the time and I'm centered. And usually the glib talk is pretty much glib talk because the minute they run into an annoying person or what, they don't get what they want, it's like the mask comes off and they're just railing like everybody else. So uh, the daily grind really is a daily grind because we labor. Now most of us don't labor like our grandparents did, you know, like coal mining or, or working on a farm. Most of us don't do that. But we definitely labor. We're laboring with our computers. We're in an office or, or in a cubicle or we're behind a desk someplace or maybe behind a counter. And we have to deal with, um, with people, with coworkers or bosses or employees that we particularly may not want to be around most of the time. But we have to be with them. And they, have to, they might be annoying, they might be demanding, we might have de demanding clients. And a lot, and our, so much of our time, so much of our mental field is dealing with these work-related issues. Because how, if, you're, if you're going to work, if you're, I was just in New York, uh, in a bedroom community of New Jersey where three hours a day is spent getting to the job. So it's like you've also got the commute. If you're living in LA, at least an hour or two a day is spent just getting to your work, and that's part of this daily grind. That's like getting in the car. It's like, okay, here we go, you know, fighting the battle. You know, we're not doing, we're not gain, you know, we're not putting on the armor. We're, we're getting in the car, and some's like, okay, here we go. Let's hope I can get into this. So, we all, and it says, well, we have to work long hours. Often, when we get home from work, we have to boot up the computer again and finish our work because we couldn't get it done at work. We have to work longer hours than before. Sometimes we have to work on weekends. We have to, we take it home with us. If the, if we get an email, we have to answer it right away. We feel kind of this pressure going at all times. And in the weekend, we're doing laundry, we're doing cleaning, we're doing the grocery, we have to take the kids here and there, wherever where we go, we're feeling like this. We feel like we can't let up and that it's nipping at our heels like work, nips at our heels like a badly behaved dog, not like mine, but like other behave, badly behaved dogs. And everyone's got a different version of the daily grind. If, if you're a mother, you still got a daily grind. You gotta take the kids here, you gotta take the kids there, you've gotta make the meal, you're supposed to be doing this. You feel like there's not enough hours in the day and you feel like this is where most of our mind is going. It's on this work-related stuff. Dealing with work, dealing with the people associated with work, dealing with the grind of work, and not being able to kind of let it go. So that even when we get home from work, even if it's on a weekday, we can't just like slough it up and say, oh, it's still there ringing around our head. And we just can't have that space. We want to have a spiritual life. We feel like this big, there's this big division between our quote-unquote secular life, our worldly life, our work life, and this spiritual life, which we have when we have a free minute here, and that's like, okay, I want to go into a corner and meditate. I really want to center myself. But we feel like there's this huge division, like we can't do both at the same time, because there's the spiritual me and there's the, the real me. There's the real me who has to do the work that has to be in line, who's got to, you know, be, be this working person. So, and I think this is a, 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 
unfortunate way to live because we don't want to have two, two beings, two me's. We only have one, we can only live one life at a time. We only have one life at a time. So our life should be integrated. It should be seamless. We should have this feeling of living a completely seamless life. We don't want to have like a rock on our spiritual shoe, right? Something that's like something is out of whack. It shouldn't, we shouldn't be feeling like this doesn't fit into my holistic life. Our whole life should be holistic. Part of us going in one direction towards a great goal. So for this reason, the Hindu tradition teaches karma yoga. And the Bhagavad Gita discusses this a great deal. And so did Swami Vivekananda when he came to the West about how important it is to make our action, our work, uh, um, an integrated part of our spiritual life so that it's actually not a part of our bondage, but part of our freedom from bondage. So what do I mean by bondage? Because when I see bondage, it sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? It's like, no, I don't feel bonds. What do we kind of, we kind of talk about? So when we talk, we have to take a step back first and then talk about karma. Now, karma, the term karma gets, the term gets tossed around a lot. And I've been very amused lately. I've been sort of going out of my way to look for karma bumper stickers. Did you know there's a whole industry of karma bumper stickers? Have you seen some of them? Now, the, the, the most prevalent one is kind of an older one saying, my karma ran over your dogma. <laughs> now, personally, I find that hostile, and I don't like it. I don't want your, your karma to run over my dogma. Um, the other one is, uh, good karma is cost effective. That's nice, all right, fine, good, all right. Uh, then how people treat you is their karma, how you react is yours. Well, it's true enough, but it's kind of preachy, isn't it? It's like, do you have to have a bumper sticker for that? Yeah, it's like, come on, why don't you just do it? Okay, and then, um, this is for Wendy, keep calm and let karma finish it. <laughs> My favorite is, I saw that, signed karma. <laughs> that was utterly hilarious. Now, now, the point is that the term karma is bandied around a lot. We hear it a lot. It's like, you know, even the piece you, people you least expect to use the word will come out the word karma. And what's interesting, it's almost always associated with karma fala, or the result, the effect of the original action, not the action itself. See, the word karma comes from the verb root kri, to do. It simply means to do. So karma means action or even thought because thought is an action. So karma means thought or action and it also means the effect or the result of that particular thought of action which in Sanskrit is called karma phala. Phala meaning fruit. The fruit, the result of that action or thought. Now we tend in the West, we've often tended just to say, oh, that was, you know, getting the result of that bad karma. But that's only half of the equation. And we can't really separate the thought or action from its fruit. It's a whole package. We have to take the whole package as it is. So every action, every thought is a karma. Even involuntary actions are actually karmas. For example, our breathing, 
our heartbeat, digestion, our kidneys functioning. This is an action, but it doesn't accrue karma because it's involuntary and it is desireless. It is motiveless. We're not saying, oh, kidneys, you better do that or you better work now. It's, it goes on without us. It goes on without desire, and that's the clincher. The desire or the motive is the big clincher in that. So without, and we'll, we'll deal with that a little bit later. Now, in recent years, the idea of karma has really taken off in the West, and I think primarily because it appeals to our Western, a particularly American sense of justice, you know, or the Supreme Court. You know, the, 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 she's holding the scales there of justice, and we like that. Good comes to the good, bad comes to the bad. You know, what goes around comes around, you sow what you reap, we like that. Um, Hitler may have died in a bunker, and Pol Pot may, may not have suffered as much as we think he perhaps should have, but as the Greeks said, the wheels of the gods grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And we like that. We like the sense of, of, of the scales of justice. It appeals to us. Um, we, we, we reap what we sow. But the further extension of that is that there's no reason to blame anyone for our, our unhappiness. So whenever we're unhappy, we can't say, that person made me unhappy. It's simply, as we know, but we don't really prefer to think about, our own actions, previous thoughts and actions, which are taking, which we are receiving the karma fulla, the fruits of that action. Similarly, any joy or happiness that comes to us is because of our own thoughts and actions. Every action, every experience that we have is the result of our own previous thoughts and actions. Our thoughts and our actions are not arrows that we send out, they're boomerangs. They may take lifetimes to, to come back, but they, my boomerang don't come back, it come back. It comes back. It will all come back in one form or another. Everything that happens that we, everything that we get back, we have sent for special delivery. So we have to keep that in mind when we blame others for our unhappiness. Similarly, we have to remember that what good comes to us is also the result of our own good thoughts and actions in previous lives. Now, by realizing this, we come to a much more mature understanding of God. For example, we can't put the personal God as the divine bad guy who's always in a bad mood, he's got the eternal stick in his hand, who's, who seems to like some people and doesn't seem to like other people at all. And it, it's like he's an unforgiving guy with a really long memory. This, this sort of takes it out of like Santa Claus is gonna put coal in your stocking sort of God's even gonna do worse than you. You know, it's like, okay, and that goes for on forever. It takes it out of that court. So we don't blame God. How could God have allowed that to happen? We hear this all the time. If there is a God, how could that have happened? Well, God simply <laughs> was watching while the results of the karma fella came back. Why did that person do things in their previous life? There's no, or previous lives is the real question. So 
this also begs the question, is the personal God then just helplessly saying, I'm sorry, I couldn't do a thing. I just saw the karma come. Sorry, I couldn't help you. No. Uh, Sri Sarda Devi said so beautifully that while, for example, if a person has good thoughts and good actions and leading a very sincere spiritual life, what should have been a leg cut off will be instead a scratch. The karma will have to take effect, but the karma can be mitigated. Every karma will have to take its effect, but the effect can't be mitigated. It isn't like any karma will be erased. There isn't like a divine eraser that we can find. What we try to do is simply, again, balance the scales so that whatever bad thoughts and bad actions that we have done can be, weight, can be balanced by good thoughts and good actions. And most of, we, of what we experience in life is not great misery or great joy, but a thousand little happinesses, a thousand little miseries that are continually, minutely balancing in our lives. And this is what we're experiencing. The result of these little happinesses, unhappiness from previous, from many lives, uh, good actions, bad actions, bad thoughts, good thoughts. Now briefly, there are three types of karma. And we won't go this in depth because it's been talked about, discussed. But first of all, there is Kriyamana, the first karma, which is what we're thinking and doing right now. This is the karma that we're doing right now and they will have effect. This is what we have control over. Sanchita karma is the package of karma that we have for this life itself. We have this much karma, but for this life we have, we have a packet of this much. So if a person lives a long life, it's the packet was this big. If a person has a short life, the packet was this big. Sanchita karma. The last karma, which is the more interesting one, is parabda. Parabda is the, well, determines, our parabda karma determines this and our future lives. It's compared to the arrow that has already been shot. The arrow, the archer gets the arrow, pulls back the bow, the arrow goes out and goes, oh my God, I didn't mean to aim for that deer. But the arrow's been shot. The arrow will take effect. Now maybe you can scream at the deer and the deer gets grazed by the arrow instead of being killed by the arrow, but the arrow will find its mark. So again, no karma can be erased, but it will take effect, but we can try to mitigate the karma. So, but today we're gonna to talk about karma in general, which is action and the effect of action, thought and the effect of thought. And as far as the results of karma, and this is absolutely critical. There's only two types of results of karma. The karma which brings us joy or happiness, sukha, and the karma that brings us unhappiness, misery, dukkha. The results only two. It brings us happiness, it brings us unhappiness. Very simple. So when some good thing comes to us, we're receiving the, the, our good karma is coming back to us in some way, whether it's the job that we wanted, the marriage that we wanted, that parking place at Trader Joe's, the Rory's ice cream. It's a little bit of good karma coming to us. Similarly, when things go wrong, when we get fired from the job, when we uh, you know, gain 10 pounds, when we hurt our foot, or when a dear friend gets ill, this is when some of our uh, bad thoughts, bad actions, we are reaping the fruit of that. Now sometimes there's absolute straight across 
cause and effect that's fairly easy to see. Oh, I wanted this to happen, but it didn't happen, and therefore I am unhappy. I wanted this to happen, it happened, I am now happy. There's a straight across cause and effect. A became B, B became A, very clear, no problem. Most of the time, there is no such straight across um, cause and effect, easy to see cause. It because there are, we have lifetime after lifetime, innumerable lifetimes of positive, good thoughts and actions, and innumerable ones, negative thoughts and actions. And all these are going together in like huge layers that have mixed with each other and are going around and will take effect in some unique sort of way. So there's, we can't really say that this person, the reason this child suffered is because in their previous life, you know, they kicked the dog. There's no, no matter what new agey thing person tells you something, no matter all those new life regressions, it's frankly, it's nonsense. There is no, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, karmana, um, karmanas gahana gatihi, karmano gatihi. Gahano is deep, vast, deep. Karma is so deep and vast, it is inscrutable. So there's no straight across thing. We can't really try to reason it out our minds. If Krishna says it's inscrutable, it's inscrutable. Don't try, don't try to figure it out. Well, we all, the, the, it really isn't in our advantage to even try to worry about it. What is absolutely critical to remember and uh, there, there's been a lot of confusion about this, so it's important to really keep this in mind, is karma determines our experience. It doesn't determine our actions. Again, karma determines our present experience. It has determined our past experience. It does not determine our actions or our thoughts. That is not karma, that is our will. We have freedom over that. If I choose to do something, that is not my karma. That is my choice. That is not in the level of karma. It does not determine our actions or our thoughts. So our present happiness or unhappiness is due to our previous thoughts and actions. Our future experience is dependent on our present thoughts and actions, and that's absolutely critical because that puts it in our own court. It puts our future in our own court. It's Hinduism is not fatalistic, it's extremely empowering. No one to blame, it's all on us. So it's in, it's in our hands, however, that does not make it easy. Because our own, because karma and actions and thoughts not only work in the external world, they also work in the internal world. Every thought we think, every action that we do, creates an impression in the mind called samskara, which is a little groove in the mind that our thoughts and actions make. Every thought that we think, every action that we do, makes a subtle impression in the mind called a samskara. Anytime that thought or action is repeated, that impression gets deeper 
It's like, you know, how water goes into a gutter and kind of rushes down. We are creating these little gutters in our mind by repeated thoughts and actions. And this is why gutters work so well, and this is how we create habits. If every time I react to frustration with anger, or with depression, or with um, a stiff drink, or a piece of chocolate, or cussing, it will mean the second time I experience that frustration, I will be more likely to do again, because I form this little rut in my mind, and a new impression is coming in, and it will go right into that rut. So by the time we've made that rut five times deeper by reacting with the same cuss word every time that happens, it's gonna be almost like automatic. So by the time we've done it like a hundred times, a hundred times someone cuts you off on the freeway, what is your reaction gonna be? You can pretty much gauge what it's gonna be. This is how habits are formed. This is how addiction happens. And this is how character is formed. Our character is formed by minute hundreds of thousands of reactions in our own mind that we know, we all know negative people, impatient people, unhappy people. We know, hap we know joyful people, unselfish people, generous people, loving people. And these character traits that we see are simply the formations of repeated habits of thinking in our mind, repeated and putting grooves in the mind so that whenever a new stimulus comes, the neural pathway is already there to take this new impression and make that impression deeper, which is why it's so hard to change anything, which is why it's so tempting to say, God made me do it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, there's this wonderful story in, in the Hindu tradition where uh, this farmer is, has this big, beautiful garden. And this cow comes in and eats part of it, tramples it, and so the farmer gets overwhelmed by rage and takes a big stick and kills the cow. And it's like in the Hindu tradition, to kill a cow is worse than killing uh, your wife or your baby or anything else. It's like really on the top there of the bad list. So he hides the cow, and puts it over in the back of the garden. So Indra, the king of the gods, is noticing this and is going, uh. so he goes down in disguise, and it go Indra comes down and says, sees the farmer goes, what a beautiful farm. Who made this farm? And the, and the farmer goes, I did. And then Indra said, oh, what a beautiful fountain. And he said, who made this fountain? I did. Well, look at that bed of, look at that bed of roses over there. Who did that? I did. And he goes further, he goes, who killed that cow? Oh, Indra did it. <laughs> the gods did it. It's like, and Indra comes out of his disguise and said, no, you take, you take responsibility for one thing, you take the responsibility for the good, you take responsibility for the bad, bad and out comes the thunderbolt, bing. <laughs> Next life, <laughs> move them on. So our character is composed by a thousand million different habits. And all this again, everything that repeated on the physical world is repeated in the mental world as well. Now, again, all this, our lives, is kind of pulled by this push-me-pull-you scenario. Because if we analyze it, most of our actions are dealing with desire. I want this, I want this to happen, so I will do this action. I don't want this to happen, I think this is gonna take what limited happiness I have. I don't want this to happen, therefore I will do this. So we find that we're in this continual scenario of yes, no, yes, no. I want this to come to me, I don't want this to come to me. 
So the whole time, we're actually being driven by either unconscious or conscious desire and motive. I want this to happen, therefore I'm going to do this. I don't want this to happen, therefore I will do this. So our whole lives are being driven by action, which are driven by desire. And all this creates karma. All this power of our will is being used to determine our action, which will then go into the fruits of the action. So this whole little scenario is being built up here that we're often quite unconscious of. And we should never be driven by our unconscious actions or thoughts. So as we've heard here a billion times, the whole problem is that we're unaware of our divine nature. We simply forget. We simply are aware, unaware of the fact we are this infinite divine being. We all know, we've heard a thousand times before, and we believe it, that we are pure, we are perfect, we are eternal. Our real nature is absolutely luminous. It's unaffected by birth and death, unaffected by sorrow, unaffected by disease. It's the nature of absolute bliss. It's the nature of pure existence, pure consciousness, all the nature of absolute pure being. We believe this, we feel it to be true, but when it comes down to it, we still feel there's a lack. We are this infinite divine being, but we still have this gnawing lack in our heart. We feel, Houston Smith would say, we have this God-shaped hole in our heart. Even though we are the infinite, we feel like we need something outside of ourselves to make us happy, to make us whole, to make us fulfilled, to make us complete. So because of that feeling of lack, we have desire for something out there to bring in here that will make me happy, that will make me whole. Now, whether that is, you know, um, the boyfriend, the husband, the new wife, the, the better car, the, the new iPad, chocolate, um, you know, the stiff drink, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, we think that will make us happy. I had such an illuminating experience uh, years ago. When you grow up in this country and you're always kind of the chubby one, you know, you always look at these thin, gorgeous girls and you think, ah, if only I could be like them. So I took it upon myself to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. I am perfectly capable of doing it. So when I got down to that size six or, or eight and I was that, that thin and, I, and people would say, wow, you look great. You lost so much weight. And I thought that I would be happy. And there I would, I would get myself on a scale every day and I'd weigh myself and I'd say, wow, I did it, I did it. I finally got down to that and I'm so, I would look at myself and say, wow, I got butt it off, great. <laughs> and I realized, I thought, are you happy? It's like, no, no. And I knew better, I totally knew better. But somehow I thought, well, maybe it would be different. <laughs> you know, it's like we think maybe this time for sure it's gonna be different, no. Same old mind, same old ignorance. It's like nothing in this external world is going to bring the happiness that's already in here that we haven't accessed. So unless we access it here, nothing out there ain't gonna access it for us. It's like, but we always forget, so what the desires come out with me was the desires like, get on that scale, did it work this time? Walk another 10 miles, see if it works this time. 
Yeah, the insanity of it all. <laughs> Even when you know better, right? Even when you know better. So then it's like, okay, so then we start with the desire to have attained this goal. Okay, but with that desire, this karma, this action is done. When we get the karma, we also get the karma fala, right? The fruit of that action. So the fruit of that action will come in one form or another. What that means when you get that fruit of the action, it has to be worked out somewhere. It will work out in the mind. It will also work out in the external world at some future point, which means we need another body. Another birth has to do, we've already come with our packet. The packet is only this big, so we've got this much karma we've just built up, which means Welcome to the wonderful circus of samsara. Here we go again. Da, 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 da. You have to take another birth for this karma fulla to take effect. For this effect of this karma that we've put in place by our desire because of our initial ignorance of our divine nature, we've come to that, say, okay, now we need another birth to work this karma and these desires out. This is what we mean by bondage. This, this circle of, of desire, action, the action takes fruit. We, some other experience comes which creates more desire, which creates more action, which creates more fruit, and it goes on and on and on. Which Swami Prabhavananda used to say, people come to me and they say they want to be reborn and they shall have their wish. But it's the same old stuff. <laughs> it's like, great, if you want it, there it goes. It will happen automatically. You don't have to work for it. <laughs> it, it, it comes with the program. It's, it's, it has a coupon, free. <laughs> so, uh, the only way out of the bondage is to realize who we are, to realize this we're immortal divine beings, that we're, that nothing, that we are already full. We're purna. We are full. We are complete. We are perfect already, that nothing out there can make us happy. That we have, we are infinite joy. We are, we are not happy, we are happiness. We are joy, we are perfect. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we, how, do we, how do we remember what we've apparently forgotten? Well, that's where we come to the yogas. And all yogas, all of these yogas that we know, karma, yoga, raja, jnana, all are paths to freedom, all are designed to show us who we are, to bring us back to our true nature. But karma yoga does it through the very thing that gives us bondage, through action, through desire. Because remember how we said that the kidneys, the heart, all this beat, and it does, but it doesn't build up karma. Why? Because it doesn't have desire. So if you want to cut, if you want to cut a chain, you look for the weakest link, right? So the weakest link it's going to be the link of desire because we can't change how the karma will take effect. We can change what's in our court, which is our mind, which is in the level of desire. So if we can learn to stop the desire, that's where we can break the chain and stop being in bondage. So we have the freedom that's ours by right. Freedom is our right. We desire freedom because we know we're free. So how do we get back to that that freedom that's our own birthright by snapping the chain of desire. So for that reason, action which builds up the karma has to be motiveless. 
And it sounds easy, but it's a, the most miserably difficult thing in the world to do. Krishna said, we have the right to work, but not to the fruits. Which sounds like, okay, well, I can do that, okay. So that means if we get praise from our boss, it's not ours. If we get, if we get blame from our boss, it's not ours either. If we've got an A in the test, that doesn't belong to us. An F on the test, doesn't belong to us either. If we get a compliment on our appearance, that doesn't belong to us, nor does a, a, a catty remark about our appearance, that doesn't belong to us either. None of this are ours. Krishna points out something we all know, and that is we don't have any control over the results of our actions, right? We know this, but we are always completely forgetting it. He said those who work for the results of action are miserable. And that's true because if we work to do something having this effect, the universe is not at our back and call. The universe is gonna do what it's gonna do. So if we're always looking, I'm doing this so I can have this effect, it ain't gonna happen and we're gonna be in continual anxiety and misery and trying to do some other maneuver to get the universe to do what it wants us to do. The universe could care less, it's got its own, it's got its own trip. It's gonna do its own thing. So to break the chain of samsara, this, this chain of bondage, we go, we have to click, we have to clip it at desire. So there are basically two ways of doing that. The first is if we believe in a personal God, if we like the idea of worshiping a personal God, whether that be Jesus or Buddha or Mary, or whether it is Ramakrishna or Sarda Devi, Holy Mother, or, or whatever that Shiva or Krishna, Kali or Durga, it doesn't matter. Devote, make every action an offering to that personal form of God that you love, just as to your beloved, you would give the best Cali Brisson chocolate, right? The best, you won't give them like rotten roses, you'll give the best flowers. You'll give the best things. Just in the same way you will make all, the, if we do all of our actions in a way that you're dedicating it to God, that way, and then just, you do this, and then it's yours, we step back. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, make all your acts an offering to, be, to me. Bow down to me in self-surrender. Then you will come into my being. Then you will come into my being. That, that's such a wonderful idea. Just make all your acts, whatever they be, however small, it doesn't matter. Every action can be dedicated to the divine. That, but to do that, we have to sort of get rid of all ideas of ownership, and that's really hard to do. Ramakrishna always used to say, oh mother, I am the machine, you are the operator. I am the chariot, and you are the charioteer. It's like, you don't find a stressed out chariot. It's like this chariot's totally happy just being an instrument. So if we can kind of get that idea of like that beautiful song that Jayanti sang, it's like you're doing it through me. If we can just try to get some idea of that, it makes our lives so much easier. It gives us so much more peace. Those who are drawn, who are, who are drawn to an impersonal idea of God, the, who want to worship the spirit by the spirit, that's, uh, these are the, the great heroes of the world who their great unselfish action do the good in the world without desiring name or fame, have no motive whatsoever, but to just do good because it's good to do good. 
And these are the kind of the unsung heroes that uphold the world. Without them, the world would collapse. Vivekananda said, there are some who are really the salt of the earth in every country who work for work's sake, which is the ideal, to work for work's sake only without desiring any, any of the fruits, and who do not care for name or fame or, or even to go to heaven. They have no interest in it. He said they work just because, because good will come out of it. He said if we work without any selfish motive in view, he said, do we not gain anything? He said, yes, we gain the highest. Because love, truth, and unselfishness are not merely moral figures of speech. He said, they form our highest ideal, love, truth, unselfishness. Those are the highest ideals that the human, humans have been given in this world. And this, by working for work's sake alone, doing good just because it's good to do good, without motive, without desire for any reward, that is the highest goal. And a very important practice of karma yoga is to serve others as manifestation of the divine. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Shiva Jnane Jiva Seva. Worship all beings, knowing them to be embodiments of the divine. He, the, part of our Vedanta tradition here is that if you want to worship God, you don't have to go to a shrine. Serve the, the, the person directly in front of you, knowing that they are an embodiment of the divine, which is a lot easier said than done. That means that you know we can't go to the homeless person and give them money and expect them to say, oh, thank you, you've made my day, or waiting for that smile that melts your heart. You know, if they cuss at you, we have to take it with exactly the same spirit as if they give us that, that melting smile. It means that we cannot expect uh, someone to be grateful for our benevolence. It's like, I'm helping you. The word help has to be taken out of our vocabulary altogether. We have to be grateful for the opportunity to serve the divine in that form, whether it be uh, the person who's spitting at us and yelling at us while we're trying to serve them, or, or the, the person who is giving us the smile and saying thank you. Sometimes it's easier to, to, to give service to animals because they don't talk back, right? Like, oh, I love during service of the Humane Society because they're so grateful. It's like, well, try, you know, maybe work with, try, you know, start there, then try to work up and see how far it goes. It's very tough not to expect gratitude. You do something, and that's the, usually, that's one of the big Achilles heels in our life. We expect people to react in a certain way. I did that, and they didn't even send me a thank you note. I did that, and they didn't even appreciate it. I did that, they didn't even turn their head in my direction. It's like, who's creating the sorrow here? Who's creating the unhappiness? It can go on our mind for days, right? I know a person who's been going on for six months about his daughter who doesn't write the thank you note. It's like, did you give the present or not? <laughs> how, long, how long is the rope attached to that present, right? It's like, wow, isn't your arm hurting by now? <laughs> you know, just let it go, let it go. A lot easier said than done, way easier. So we can't ever harbor the idea that someone, that we're helping anybody, that someone ought to be grateful. We have to be grateful for any opportunity to serve these mysterious forms of the divine that are coming up to us in all these wonderful little masquerades. So if we can do even a little practice of that, then what Vivekananda said is what starts as 
work as worship, then moves into work is worship. And that's a long haul getting there, but unless we start, we, we can't even get to that place. Because in order for us to have to reach that point of to labor is to pray, we have to start where we are. So just any sort of an attempt to incorporate in this to in, into our lives gives us a much more integrated life, gives us a much more seamless spiritual life, and will give us so much more joy. Vivekananda said, an ounce of practice is worth a thousand pounds of theory. So anything that we try to practice will give us so much more peace so much more joy in our lives. And when we get that sense of you know, joy in just being, having an integrated life, we'll just find so much more peace and tranquility and we'll, we'll be able to really serve others. So with that thought, happy September. Thank you. Join me in the concluding chant. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnam Udachate Purnasya Purnamataya Purnam Eva Vashishate Om Shanti 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 Om filled with Brahman are the things we see, filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman flows all that is. From Brahman flows all yet. Is Brahman still the same? Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.